don't, I don't know where, where people stand on this, so don't, so don't be embarrassed. That's a good way to start this, right? Um, so by show of hands, how many, how many of you made a New Year's or multiple New Year's resolutions? How, we got any resolution-making folk in here? Good. Yeah, I, I'm, and, and I don't mean just like I, I resolve not to make any more resolutions or anything like that. Um, I, I'm also one of those types of people. Uh, it's the first, obviously, the first Sunday of 2013. This is exciting. Um, I love, love, love New Year's. I, I do. Um, and I, I didn't used to love it like, like I do now. I love making resolutions. I love the thought of a new year. Um, and it's interesting, the new year is something that just worldwide people consider. Even if their, their calendar maybe starts with a different date, like worldwide people are drawn to the new year, to the rolling over um, of the year. And, and in large portion, because if you had a really bad year, um, January becomes this new start. Uh, the New Year's represents something, uh, a new chance, a, a closing of a chapter and the beginning of a new chapter. And, and so we look at the New Year's and we're excited because we can start over. Uh, we can recast a vision for this year. We can, we can charge into that. And if we had a good year, we feel like we can build on the momentum of that year and make this next, this coming year, the best year ever. Um, and there's something to that. There's something to this idea of a new year giving us a new vision. And quite frankly, if you've had a rough patch, uh, the best way to, sometimes to get past that is to get a clear vision of the future and a good vision of the future. Um, and if you're, if things are going well, the thing to kind of remind you of, of where you are and where you want to go is, is a vision of the future. So much so um, that the Bible talks about Abraham, who we're going to be talking about. Now, um, if you remember when we started in the beginning of the fall, this series on Genesis, um, Brad the, preached the first sermon in the series on Genesis from Colossians. Um, and it, it, Seemed weird at first, but then it made perfect sense as he preached through the text about Jesus being the image of the invisible God, the creator of all things and deserving all the glory, reminding us that this story that we're reading through in Genesis is about Jesus. Um, and, and, and so to start this new phase uh, in Genesis, we're going to look at Revelation. Uh, and... I know it makes perfect sense, but we're going to go all the way to the end of Revelation, uh, to Revelation chapter 21. Um, and next week, we're going to jump back into Genesis. Uh, we're going to jump back in at chapter 12 with, uh, with uh, Abraham, be, Abram actually being called from God. And this story is amazing. And, and I don't want to talk too much about it because we're going to spend a lot of time talking about Abraham. But I do want to say that it's amazing that Abraham is this pagan from the middle of nowhere that God just decides to speak to. And Abraham or Abram has no reference to any God like a speaking God like Yahweh. He doesn't know it's Yahweh. We discussed that earlier. Um, but he knows that there's this, this being, there's this God, this voice that somehow is speaking to him and is saying, look, everything you've known and you've loved and you've poured your life into um, till now, I want you to, to leave. And he just does. Abraham's like, all right, okay, voice I haven't heard before. God whose name I do not have. I will leave all of this and go. And, and you have to ask yourself, well, why would he just do that? In fact, we do. We like to think about like the psyche of Abraham and, and we ask ourselves, why did Abram leave? And Hebrews 11 tells us why. We don't have to, we don't have to ponder it long. Hebrews 11, and you know the chapter uh, in Hebrews, it's, we often call it the hall of faith. It's, it's all of these people who have just displayed great faith. We would call them heroes of the faith throughout the Old Testament leading up um, 
out of the uh, leading with Abraham, going to the promised land, out of slavery, out of bondage, into uh, the promised land, and then being exiled out and believing towards Jesus. We get this great catalog of people who have believed in Jesus. And it says this about Abraham, uh, about Abram. Uh, in, in verse 10, it says that Abram left for this reason, because he was looking for a city with foundations whose architect and maker was God. See, Abram Abram didn't just leave. He left in faith with a vision of what God was going to do. He had a vision of, of, of what God was going to bring. And so God said, look, I want you to get up. I want you to leave this place and go to the land that I have promised you. And we think about it and we think, oh, that's the land flowing with milk and honey. It's Canaan. But what we find in Hebrews is that it wasn't Canaan. It was a more glorious place. It was a more glorious city. A city with foundations whose maker and architect is God. And so we see that city. And and we're going to talk really about that city uh, this morning. And I want us to to consider a few things as we enter into this new year. And really, um, we could call it, and I I contemplated calling the sermon, a vision for 2013. But it just, that gives the wrong idea of what this is really about because it's beyond that. Um, this, is a, this is God's vision for, for the future. This is what's coming. And as we understand that, we, we receive strength to move past the hurt of the past. Uh, and also we, we're emboldened to walk forward um, acting out of faith. And we're going to see that. Uh, because God's city... Uh, is just that glorious. Um, and so if you would, turn to Revelation 21. And this is a fairly long chapter, and I'm going to read through all of it. And so uh, what we're going to do, I'm going to have you stand for just this first little section, the first four verses. Um, we'll pray, and then you'll be seated, and, and I'll go through the rest. So, uh, yeah, stand with me, and... And let's, let's read God's Word. And this is the revelation that Jesus Christ gives to John uh, while he's exiled in Patmos. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with man. Or God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Pray with me. God, as we explore not only this uh, portion of text, God, but this entire chapter, um, and we see your vision for the future, and we see your plan, ultimately what you are going to bring to pass, God, I pray that we would rejoice in you, Pray that our hearts would be opened in faith to follow you. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You can go ahead and be seated. And before we move on, I just want to say to you that this city, this new Jerusalem, um, this is what God has been promising from almost the beginning. Uh, We don't have time to do this. In fact, if you're in home groups, you may get a chance to do this. Uh, We could easily spend time comparing what we're about to see here in Genesis 21 and what's in the first part of Genesis 22 to the Garden of Eden. 
and you would see the beauty of God's design and the way that He redeems and restores creation to how it's supposed to be, to what He initially intended. Uh, but, but we don't have time for that this morning. I want to focus instead on this, this city, this holy city, this new Jerusalem that's coming down out of heaven because I want us to see how great our God is. And to remember that we are joined to the church of old. We are joined to the saints and to the faithful ones who came even before Christ, who believed into Christ, who believed that this city was coming. Because when we read Hebrews, when we read the Old Testament, uh, we see something. We see that it's not just Abram who left his home with this city in mind, even though he didn't know it. Even though he didn't know it was this city, he left with a city in mind, with foundations whose maker and architect was God. But then Hebrews also tells us that when Moses says to the people, uh, essentially follow me, he says to Pharaoh, let my people go, he's leading the Israelites to the promised land, to the land flowing with milk and honey. And he doesn't know it, but he's guiding them in faith to this city. This city is the destination. This is the actual city that God had promised. When Joshua leads the people over the Jordan River and they actually make it into the promised land, the author of Hebrews says this, much, much, much later, there will be a king of these people named David. And he will speak by the power of the Holy Spirit and say, Look, today if you hear my voice, don't harden my heart like your forefathers did in the wilderness, and you can enter my rest. And the author of Hebrews says the rest is the promised land. And then he asks this question. Why would David, speaking in the present tense, say, there is still rest to be entered if he was in the promised land. And the answer is that they hadn't made it to the land that God ultimately promised yet. They were in Israel. They were in the land. But it wasn't it. It wasn't it. There was a a better city. There was a better Jerusalem coming. And they didn't know it. Joshua didn't know it. David didn't know it. Uh, when, when, the, when the prophets, both the major and the minor prophets, spoke about the return to the land um, in, in, during the uh, exile, they didn't realize it. But the land they were talking about wasn't a plot of earth in the Middle East. It was this. It was this city, this holy new city. And more than that, look at what the Bible says about this city. John sees it coming from God. It's coming down out of heaven from God. And we have this idea, I think, of the future and of heaven and and I don't know historically where it started, um, but it's this idea of heaven being up. You know, uh, it's part of this three-tiered universe that 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 the ancients believed in, where hell was down and heaven was up. And I understand the imagery, but the picture is that we will go up to heaven, and that heaven is sort of like. Um, episode five, like of of Star Wars, you know, it's this Lando Calrissian cloud city, except for Darth Vader isn't there. Like nothing bad's there, but it's a cloud city, and and we all get wings because clouds aren't hard enough to stand on, and and we get harps and we sing in choirs all day long, um, and for me, that's not heaven. Um, I don't know if you've heard anyone play the harp. Sorry. <laughs> but uh, that's not the picture we get here. And what's interesting is that this picture looks a lot more like what Jesus prayed. Now, Jesus prayed in Matthew uh, chapter 6, and he taught us how to pray. And in his prayer was a, also sort of a vision of what God was going to do. And he said, 
When you pray, pray like this. And, and you guys know this prayer. We pray it. We, we say it without thinking about it. But our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we want to skip right to the next part. Give us this day our daily bread, please. We need daily bread. In fact, if we could have some annual bread stored up in a bread house, God, that'd be great Um, But we skip right over that first part where Jesus says, look, your kingdom come. Your will be done. And he doesn't say after this old earth has burned up and we are remaining in the. He says on this earth as it is in heaven. And, And that's very much like this vision that John gets from Jesus himself. This holy city comes down from heaven. This is the city of God and it comes here. And we see a new heaven and a new earth. But I want you guys to also keep in mind um, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It says that any of you who are in Christ, you're a new creation right now. You're a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come right now. Like you're not waiting for this body to burn up. To get a new body. Like if you're in Christ, the Bible says right now you're a new creation. And so I want us to think about this. Um, Jesus says, behold, I'm making all things new. We're going to see that in just a second. Um, and, and I said it the last time I preached, I, I think, as well. Like He doesn't say I'm making all new things. He's saying I'm making all things new. He's renewing this earth. And so this city is coming. And, and I want us to look at the city And we're going to ask really two questions. We're just going to see what's in the city, what's not in the city. And as we explore that, I think we're going to find some truths about what God is going to do um, for certain. And we'll be encouraged. So let's look at the city. Um, We'll keep going in verse 5. He who is seated on the throne, that's, that's Jesus, said, Behold, I'm making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, As for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. We're not going to talk too much about this because we had a chance to speak on it a few weeks ago. If you remember, we talked about Jesus being the resurrection. And part of the joy that comes with new life is that God is casting out evil for good. Then, verse 9, came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with twelve gates and at the at the gates, twelve angels, and on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates, on the north, three gates, on the south, three gates, and on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And I don't want to make too much of this except to say, if you didn't think this was the city that Abraham was looking for, it's interesting when you read Hebrews 11 that it pluralizes foundation. It shouldn't do that. Grammatically, he should be looking for a city with a foundation. But he is looking for a city with foundations. And then we see this eternal new Jerusalem, the city of God, and it has 12 foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the apostles of the Lamb of God. And without reading too much into, is this city that's coming down from heaven going to have X amount of walls and these things? Like what it's saying is this city is perfect. It's complete. This city is shalom. Without error. Done. 
And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. The city lies four square. Its length has the same, its length the same as its height. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits, by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. And if we were going to take much time to compare this to Eden, here's where we would do it. Because if you hear, if you remember the description of Eden, um, there's precious jewels and stones and gold all around it. And we're beginning to see this garden imagery come up. You'll see it more in 22. We won't go into it, like I said, much more than this. But I do want to say this much. That this image of jewels and precious stones and gold, it's an image of purity. And we're going to get that unpacked a little bit more as we see, again, what's in the city and what's not in the city. But this city is pure. It's perfect. It's God's city. Carrying on in verse 22. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only the one, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. All right. So let's just look really briefly at what's in what's not in the city. Right, and so we're not going to go in order, um, but just kind of keep your, your, your Bible open and I'll, um, uh, we'll just walk through this. Um, and so the, one of the first things we see that's not in the city, and this is really important, is that the city has no, uh, in verse 23, it has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. Um, for the glory of God is its light. All right, and, and then also kind of in conjunction with that, it says that there's no night. All right, so there's, there's no sun or moon and there's no night. There's just the glory of God that is pure light. And bef- just really quickly, I want to say this. John, if you are familiar with John's epistle or any of uh, John's epistles or his gospel, uh, then you, you may notice that John loves to talk about light and dark day and night. Uh, The Gospel of John, one of the prevalent themes is this juxtaposition between light and dark. All right? And so so much so that right in the very first chapter of John, we see that um, in Him, Jesus, the the Word of God, in Him was life, and that life was the light of man. And the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness could not overcome it. The darkness could not comprehend it. And so right there in John chapter 1, we start off with this juxtaposition of Jesus who represents light and the forces who are against Jesus representing darkness and those forces of darkness are represented by darkness and those forces of darkness can't overcome the power of the light of Jesus. And then in John chapter 3, we get this first instance where we see that in play. And if you remember John chapter 3, it's got in it the most... Uh, memorized, I'm sure, verse in the history of um, the world. (laughs) Um, But in the beginning of John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus, and and John makes very 
clear, makes very sure to say he came to him at night. And while it's quite probable, uh, quite probable that it was at night, that's not really the point of what John is saying. Uh, John ends chapter 2 by saying Jesus knows what makes up a man's heart. And then Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. And the picture that John is painting is that Nicodemus is trapped in this night. He's trapped in this darkness of his spirit that even he doesn't recognize. And so he comes to Jesus really in the, in the spiritual night. And Jesus shines light on it. Jesus brings truth to it. In, in chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus says to his disciples, uh, look, do God's work in the light. Because in the light is when the work is done. And when the night comes, there's no more work to be done. Like God moves in the night. Or in the light, sorry, and not in the night. In chapter 12, Jesus says, walk in the light. And as you do this, you will become sons of light. For there is coming a day where the people will want darkness. They won't endure the light. But you still, nonetheless, walk in it. There's this idea over and over again that light is representative of what God is doing, His work. Night representing the the or night and darkness representing opposition to it. Uh, think about when Jesus dies on the cross. The land is filled with darkness. Why? Because the forces of darkness think they've won. The light has been for a moment put out. And so we get this physical image of what's happening spiritually um, beyond the physical. We see that the world is covered in darkness because Jesus is the light and he's been crucified. And then at first light, the third day, he's not there. And so here we come to Revelation and now we don't even need night because the light of God, Jesus, shines unadulterated, unfiltered, unveiled for all to see. Does this mean that like there's no sleeping in heaven? I don't know. That's not the point. You know, the point is that Jesus is there. What else is not there? There's no temple in this city. Why? What was the temple used for? The temple is where God dwelled with his people. And a lot of stuff happened there. The priests interceded on behalf of the people. There were sacrifices. But nonetheless, the temple, the tabernacle, more than anything else, it was the presence of God in the midst of his people. And there's no need for a temple because, as we've already seen in Revelation, and if you read through Revelation, it's, it's, it's really interesting all the different motifs showing how God is victorious and present with his people. But in Revelation chapter 4, we get this picture of Jesus in glory and, and he's, he's surrounded by rainbows and brilliance and light. And then it says, and he's walking in between these 12 lampstands, which are the church, the 12 churches. And Jesus is there walking in the midst of his people. Jesus is there. And that's the point. We don't need a mediator because Christ is present with us in this city. Also, there's nothing unclean or anything detestable or false. Uh, in chapter 22, it also says that there's nothing which is accursed. And so in this is sin. All of the effects of sin. Which means that for you, the power of sin in your life, temptation, those desires that creep up within you, that are constant, that war that's going on. Um, this, this Saturday, uh, men come. We're talking about what it means to be a warring man. 
And that war that's happening in, within you that, that Paul talks about in Romans 7. That, me, that, that man that is the flesh, that old man within you and the new man within you, they're at battle. Well, well, in this city that's coming, that old man is gone. The tension that you feel as a believer trying to faithfully follow Jesus, and, and you feel it, don't lie and say that you don't. The tension between being one who follows Jesus and between being one who lives for yourself, it's ever-present. And it may look different for different people. But that tension is gone. There's peace within your spirit. But there are other effects of sin, too. Right? And we've talked about these. Conflict, racism, war, divorce. Murder. In Isaiah 53, we get a picture of this city too. And it's a, it's a beautiful saying. It's a beautiful truth. That in this city, no, no child dies while young of age. Infant, childhood mortality, that's gone. Death is gone. Anything corruptible, anything wicked is gone. It's not in the city. This city is pure. So what is in the city then? Well, we see that this city has a gate. And as we read more about the gate, we see that it's always open. This gate doesn't close. Um, and to just kind of end any speculation about that, if a gate was closed um, in a city in the ancient Near East, it was a bad thing because it meant the city was at war. Gates were the final mode of defense for a city. And if you love uh, like the Lord of the Rings or fantasy things like, th- like that. Like if you love the Lord of the Rings um, and you've seen the movies, even if you don't love them and you've seen the movies, it's a great picture of the kind of the orcs and the forces of darkness storming Minas Tirith and, and just all of these different gates of these cities. And the last thing to go is the gates. And then once the gates are destroyed, the people flee because it's over. There's no, there's no refuge. There's no hiding place. There's nowhere to go. You've been conquered. And so what happens is if, if, if a city is at peace, the gates open. Now, in the city gates, things happen. Um, governance of the city happens there. Uh, they're, they're the judicial system, uh, the courts are in the gates. Trade, commerce all happen in the gates. And so when the gates are open, the city is open for business. But also if the gates are open, the people know they don't have to fear an enemy. And so when Scripture tells us that the gates are open in the city, what it's saying is there is ultimate peace. There is no need to fear the enemy. And the reason, of course, is because the enemy is gone. And it's the same reason um, that just like in a lot of the prophets we hear, we can beat our swords uh, into uh, sickles and our spears into shears because there is no need to fight with them anymore. However, they are needed for gardening, which kind of brings me into the second thing that we see in this city. Um, and, and it's actually interesting because when we think about heaven, when we think about the end, we kind of say, oh, there are no nations. There's no... It's all one people worshiping God together in the same way all the time. And I, I think that... That's probably mostly true. But in this text, we see that there are kings of nations and they're bringing their riches into the city. Um, and in Isaiah, and I, I might be wrong in this, but I'm pretty sure it's 53 again. We get this picture of ships coming up to New Jerusalem. 
And these ships are not warships. In the beginning, they look like just this dark cloud that's approaching the city. And it's very ominous. And then they're ships. And it's even more ominous because they must be war vessels. But then these ships dock. And they're bringing goods from all of the different nations to trade freely in New Jerusalem. And so whether that means there are nations or not, I'm not sure. But what it does mean is that all of the things that make up human culture will be there. Culture goes on. There's not an end to human culture. It's not all of a sudden now this time of simply singing hymns forever. There's agriculture and there's art and there's trade and there's governance. There's culture. Human culture is a good thing. We ought not reject culture. But instead, remember that God is renewing it as well. And and, and we should be a part of cultural renewal. Because it's a part of God's vision. It's a part of what God is doing. Rather than saying that this new city, this new heaven, is a place where human culture ends and everybody just worships perfectly without the hindrance of culture, we ought to say the new city is where human culture is perfected and where we see it the way it should be. And all the good things that should come from trade happen without all of the, um, without of the, all of the externalities. And all of the good things that should happen with international relations and with interracial relations happen without racism, without hatred, without fear. All of the good things that come from art no longer is beauty displayed without the truth that's behind it. Creating essentially pornography. Whether it's violent pornography or sexual pornography, whatever it is. The truth that is behind, or the beauty that is behind those things is presented with truth and thus they glorify God Perfectly. The city has culture, and its culture is beautiful, and it brings honor to Jesus. This is a place we want to be. And so, um, all of these things are here culture, peace, prosperity. I mean, we talked about the purity of the, the city, but if a city is adorned with Jewels and gold, like it's, it's prosperous. The city of God is prosperous. The wealth of the nations are being poured into the city of God. There's prosperity there. But if we say that all of those things are there and we leave out the simple fact that Jesus is there, then we miss out on heaven altogether. And this is something that we are very prone to do. We are very prone to thinking of heaven as being the place that contains the perfection of all the things I love without any of the things I hate. So for my daughter Hazel, heaven is a place where there is endless pepperoni pizza and where you can always watch the Avengers XD cartoon and, and where there's no school. It's a simple place. And we, we laugh at that, but, but that's our approach to it. It's, it's the audio adrenaline approach where you love football, well, there's a big, big yard and you can play it. You like eating? Lots and lots of room, lots and lots of food. I don't know, it's there. What don't you like? You know, war? I mean, it's, it's the way that I preach it. There are things that are intrinsically bad and we know it. We don't want them. We don't want war. We don't want death. We don't want disease. We don't want divorce. And those things aren't going to be there. But if, if that's enough for you, if it's enough to just be somewhere where these things don't exist, you know, or if it's just enough for you to be in a place where Tony Romo doesn't throw interceptions, It's not heaven. 
I want you to imagine that. Just for a second. Imagine the most perfect place in the world. Some of you, it might be mountains. Some of you, it might be, be the shore. I don't, I don't know. Um, but imagine that place. And everything you love is there. All the people you love are there. All the things you, you dislike aren't there. And now for a second, just imagine Jesus also isn't there. Is it still heaven? Would you still want to be there? Or perhaps the harder thing. Imagine a place where none of the things that you thought you loved were. No Carolina sports, Brad, I'm sorry. You know, no art. The people you love weren't there. But Jesus was. Could you call that heaven? Could you call that the new city? If not, then your hope is misplaced. Then your treasure is in earth. But the Bible tells us, look, you don't have to worry about that. The reality is all these things are true. They, they are coming. But more than that, remember, there's no need for sun. There's no need for a temple because Jesus is there, always present with us, walking in our midst. Jesus is there. That's heaven. That's the new city. It is the place where God and his people are joined together with no fear of separation ever again. Where Christ rules without opposition. And we can see in our hearts that the best thing for us is the benevolent dictatorship of Jesus Christ. The benevolent, benevolent rule of, of Jesus Christ. We won't say dictatorship. But you get the point. The best thing for us is Jesus. And now that, that translates to here on earth because... Um, uh, there is a prevalent theology that if you have Jesus, then things in your life will be going well. And if things aren't going well, then you must not be down with Jesus. And then you think that you're doing things the way you should be doing them and things don't go well and you decide or you have to make a decision. Will I follow the things that I've decided are blessings, will I go for those or will I go for Jesus? What do I want more? A happy family? Money and savings? A yearly holiday? To the beach? I don't know. Wherever you want to go. To know that my kids are going to graduate from high school, they're never going to do drugs, they're not going to go to jail. And their kids are going to also all go to Ivy League schools, full scholarships. You want Jesus. Again, this, this, this idea that what if Jesus, if following Jesus costs you everything? Where is your treasure stored? What is your heavenly city look like if your vision of heaven doesn't have jesus in it then it's not heaven and there's no hope but revelation gives us a vision of jesus with his people forever and so there is some response to this then because we have to realize that this vision just like abraham who caught this vision how did he do it he did it The Bible says by faith, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. The vision of this city, this city can only be seen and entered into with eyes of faith. Only if you have faith in the work of Jesus Christ will you ever be a part of this city. And that can be hard because some of us are skeptical, cynical people. And we hear and we see these things and we say, yeah, that's just what people say to comfort people who are dying. 
and to energize people who are scared that death is coming. Which brings us to the second application of this. Not only do we need faith to see these, not only do we need to see with eyes of faith, we need to act in accordance with that faith. See, what Jesus did his first advent, his first time here, was to give us little pictures of this. He healed people. He fed people. He raised the dead. He sacrificed his life for people. He, the king, was present, and so he brought with him little pieces of heaven, little glimpses of heaven, so that if people said, you know what, I just, it's resurrection is too good to be true. He raised Lazarus from the dead. You know, no, no more tears, no more sickness, no more hunger, it's too good to be true. He fed the masses. He healed people. And he did it all with this goal to say, look, I am the king. My kingdom is coming. Follow me. And so now as the church, we are the visible body of Christ to the world. And we have to walk in faith with God's vision. Look, what we see our, our, what we see our faith leading to, what our highest end is, we will live out. And so for us, if, <clears throat> for us, if Christianity is about being safe, from dirt and sin and it's about us being clean and holy and our kids being safe and comfortable that's how we're going to live christianity for us will compel us to retreat into christian ghettos to do nothing to have nothing to do with the world except for judgment to save as much as we can and to huddle up until Jesus burns it all and we go up to heaven with him. That's the outflowing of, of, of our worldview. If our, if our opinion of what Christianity is bringing, what the vision that is coming is, if, if it's just our well-being here on earth, that's how we're going to live. But if this is our vision, if this city that is coming is our vision, then we're going to live as citizens of that city. Which means when we can see the sick healed. And look, I'm, I, I know that God can heal people. But that I'm not talking about we see somebody sick on the street and we cast our shadow on them and you know the Holy Spirit like with the apostles heals them. I'm not saying that can't happen, but I'm, I'm saying we see sick, broken people every day. And as a church, we have the opportunity to minister to them by meeting their needs. Some of you have very specialized care when it comes to medicine and health. And yes, it is good to have a business and it's good to provide for your family and to pay your bills with that. But also you have the ability to use that, to leverage that knowledge for the sake of the kingdom by helping people who cannot help themselves. In the walls of this church, there is more than enough money and enough food for the people who are sitting in this wall. In these walls. So we have the ability to say that there's no hunger in Jesus' kingdom. And you say that's too good to be true. Well, let me just give you a little foretaste of that by providing a meal for your family. There's peace in this kingdom. Let me provide a little foretaste of that by giving up my rights so that we can be at peace with each other. There are no strangers in heaven. Let me be welcoming. Let me know my neighbors. Let me love them and pray for them. We can do this. We can act in accordance with our faith if this is our vision. But we can only do it by the power of Jesus Christ, by his work on the cross. And so if you have not yet believed in Jesus Christ, if you say, I want this and I want that God because that God is worth worshiping, you are right. And that God wants you. So much so that he sent his son to die for you. And so now, today, is the day where you need to Trust fully in Him. 
in a way that you can acknowledge that trust, that shift in your view, that understanding, that belief that comes by grace through faith. Um, a way that you can acknowledge that, acknowledge that is by praying. Praying and telling God that you, you trust in His work and you're thankful for His grace. And you want to live like a citizen of that city. And for the rest of us, a way that we do that is by remembering. So much of the Scripture's call to a faithful believer is to remember the works of God. Because what God is going to do, He has been doing in little pieces and portions since the fall. And what God is going to do, this city will come. It it is sure because Jesus Christ died and rose again. And so as Christians, we are called to remember. And the way that we remember together, most obviously, is communion. And so we are going to take communion together. We are going to remember the work of of Jesus Christ. We're going to remember His broken body. We're going to remember His poured out blood. And we're going to remember that all of this was so that He might be King of this new city that's coming. What better way to rejoice in that than through communion? So, um, if the elders would come up, I'm going to pray and we'll, we'll take communion. God, thank You for giving Abram a vision of the city so that he might respond in faith and follow you, that he might be the, the father of many nations, and that through his offspring we would see Jesus, and that all the nations would be blessed because you are a God who takes people unfit for service, chooses them out of your own goodness, and equips them, empowers them. You have chosen us, you've empowered us with your Holy Spirit. And now let us be thankful as we remember your goodness. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So as we come to the table now, we come with Jesus' vision of a kingdom that is coming, a kingdom that is here already, but not yet fully. And so before we take communion, um, join with me in praying confidently the prayer that our Lord taught us, and we'll say trespasses, um, just so that there's not that anxious moment. So, So join with me in praying the way that Jesus taught us to pray. And he said, pray like this. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Not only did Jesus teach his disciples how to pray, he taught them how to remember him. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he broke bread with his disciples. He said, this bread, this is my body, which is broken for you. So we're going to take the bread, if you would. Stand.